leftovers, or the DMV, or house cleaning, or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. T plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Welcome to another episode of Duncan Dynasty along, my, along with my esteemed co-host Anthony Brown. I am Garrett Bougain and uh, this, uh, this episode it's going to be uh, Greatest Team's Part three, uh, of course, we've already done an episode on just the overall greatest teams of all time. Then we also did one on the uh, you know the greatest teams to never win a title. Um, but something we did in part one that we didn't do in part two uh, was um, comparing some of those teams and like you know acting as the coaches of the teams and seeing how the teams would match up and who we think would get the better of of those matchups and so uh, we decided that we were going to do some of those for this part three there's going to be a, a whole episode just on that hmm. um we're going to start with uh the 1993 phoenix suns versus the 2002 sacramento kings um and then we're also going to be doing the ni- late 90s utah jazz versus the 2007 seven seconds or less suns uh, then we're going to do the 93 New York Knicks versus the 2000 Portland Trailblazers, uh, the 88 Hawks versus the 2014-15 LA Clippers, and then finally the 94-95 Rockets versus the 2011 Dallas Mavericks. Uh, so, Anthony, you're going to be covering more of the older teams. That's more your specialty. I'm going to be doing the more recent stuff from the last, I guess, the 2002 or 2000 Blazers was 17 years ago, but we'll call that recent. Right. <laughs> Just for uh, the sake of Yeah. yeah uh, but let's start with the uh, the 93 Suns versus the 2002 Kings. I'll be the Kings. You'll be the Suns. All right. Um, so, first off, uh, the 93 Suns were a really fantastic team led by the MVP of that season, Charles Barkley. Uh, but uh, that was one of those teams that just went up against Michael Jordan and the Bulls. Right. Uh, even though they were a championship caliber team, just weren't able to get over the hump. Oh, yeah. Really great team. Really deep bench and everything. They had lots of uh, waves of people that they could throw at you. and Yeah. I mean, having guys like even veterans like, uh, you know, the likes of Danny Ainge coming off your bench who had been in so many playoff battles with the 80s Celtics. Oh, yeah. Having that kind of experience was huge. Um, And then, you know, having really just one star player in Barkley, but again, perfect role players around him. I don't think any team uh, that he had played on in Philly had the kind of outside shooting and talent around him that that Suns team had. Oh, totally. You got uh, Dan Marley. Was able to 
you know, uh, add some some outside scoring. He in was there. one of those guys that at that time was kind of ahead of his time in terms of he could shoot from a couple feet beyond the three point line. He had right. that extended range mm-hmm. that teams didn't like value enough at that time. Whereas now in today's game, they would love exactly. Yeah, uh, and then you've also got a uh, you know Kevin Johnson at uh, point guard, a, a small, really quick uh, point guard who's able to you know, really take most people off the dribble and uh, make plays, pretty good passer and everything. Uh, you got Tom Chambers at uh, another, uh, did he play small forward or, or power forward as well? Yes. Okay. And it was, yeah, just a forward the, in general. Yeah. Yeah. But a uh, solid player, veteran. Um, yeah, former all-star, you know, same with, um, well, I guess Ainge wasn't really an all-star caliber player, but just a solid role player. But Chambers being another guy, veteran off the bench, you know, that used to be extremely um, great as a player, all-star caliber. Won, I think he won a dunk contest as well, if I remember correctly. Oh, really? Or, you know what? He, he was in one, I yeah, think. Yeah, he, he had some great posters throughout his career. I'm not sure if he actually won a dunk yeah, contest. Yeah, there's one I, I, I distinctly remember. I can't remember who it's on, but uh, Chambers jumps up, and he ends up getting some lift from the guy underneath him. So by the end of it, his head is up like at the rim. It makes it look like he's got a 40-inch vertical and just, oh, yeah. Yeah, um, and obviously <laughs> at this point, his career wasn't quite as athletic. Right. Um, but, yeah, as you mentioned, really great team. And Kevin Johnson was that perfect complement where, you know, you have that inside-outside, Barkley providing the inside presence, yeah. Johnson getting the team out on the break, and also just being that good pick-and-roll point guard that mm-hmm. could get to the basket, wasn't afraid of drawing contact oh, and yeah. all those sorts of things. Um, so, uh, look, I mean, obviously that Suns team was really good. Now looking on my side of things with that 2002 Sacramento Kings group, uh, you know, they just played absolutely beautiful basketball with the likes of Chris Webber and Vlade Divac at their big spots. Those guys were both excellent passers. Uh, so they would play through those guys at the elbows and you'd have shooting around them with the likes of Peja Stojakovic and Mike, Mike Bibby. Bibby yeah. Bobby Jackson came off the bench, was a really good backup point guard. Um, they had a defensive perimeter stopper in Doug Christie, who was pretty good. Oh, that's right. Um, they had a young Hito Turkaloo, who was a really good offensive scoring punch off the bench. Uh, just had a really fantastic team course they lost in that tragic series against the lakers where uh by all accounts they were the better team got screwed over by the refs the greatest tragedy um, in sports <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> uh but uh, you know they were an excellent especially offensively a really talented offensive basketball team and i think in this matchup in particular uh you've got two teams that weren't terrific defensively but were so good offensively that it, their defensive deficiencies didn't really matter exactly yeah uh so you know, going into the matchups here, I think one interesting thing, uh, the thing that sticks out to me is the power forward position <laughs> where you've got Charles Barkley versus Chris Weber. Oh, yeah. Uh, now there's that. Uh, um, of course, when Charles Barkley was was in his heyday at that time, Weber was in the league, but he was very young. He was kind of inexperienced. Right. There's that 90. I don't know if you've seen the series, the yeah. 94 series, where Charles Barkley plays Weber in round one. Oh, I didn't. Was Barkley, that when he was on the bullet still? Yes. Okay. Uh, and Barkley puts up, I believe it was 54 oh, wow. in game three of that series. I think the Suns ended up sweeping that series. Yeah. Uh, but Weber just had no answers for him. Barkley was just 
just too powerful, too right. strong. And I think partly though, Weber was you know not quite as um, you know he wasn't quite a man yet. He was he hadn't yeah. developed his strength and all those sorts of things to stand in there against Barkley. Um, but Barkley absolutely tore him to pieces. So certainly Barkley would be a challenge for that Kings defense, as he was for just about any team he faced. Oh, totally. Uh, super strong. Like, it's it's weird when you look at his body <laughs> and realize how powerful and how strong he is. I mean, he, he earned the nickname Round Mound of Rebound for a reason. Um, yeah, there were some, uh, I've heard stories of him coming into camp being, like, so ridiculously out of shape where it was a problem for the whole organization. But, I mean, the dude could run the floor. He was dunking on seven-footers and stuff inside. Great rebounder. Uh, but what do you think about that matchup, though, on Weber's side? Because Weber was a terrific player as well, and this is more when he's in his, his heyday with right. uh, the Kings. Um, and yeah, an interesting matchup. Yeah, Weber you know, had, had gone through a knee injury. He, had, he suffered a couple of knee injuries, but... Um, this was the 2002 season. He had only suffered one. He had come back. He was healthy, but he wasn't quite as athletic as he was okay. uh, earlier in his career. Uh, but he was definitely a lot more, you know, experienced. Uh, he knew how to play. He had developed a little bit of a mid-range shot as well. Yeah. Uh, developed that post game a little bit. He had a nice like right-handed jump hook on the block nice. uh, that was pretty effective. Um, and you know Barkley wasn't a very good defensive player, right? Right. So he would struggle defending, you know, Chris Webber on that on that end as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the other, you know, I think the reason I picked this series as an interesting matchup is because both teams have similar strengths, and even it positionally had similar strengths. Even the point guard position uh, with the Kings with Mike Bibby was probably their second best player behind Chris Webber. Right. Uh, he was a guy that uh, was a really good shooter. Uh, really good mid-range shooter as well, good pick-and-roll player, and also was not afraid to hit the big shot. You know, he was a clutch performer, uh, which maybe was kind of the weakness of Kevin Johnson's game. Yeah. Uh, in the biggest moments, he tended to kind of shy away from the limelight. Yeah, the the 93 finals was a prime example of that, where, you know, plays great throughout, uh, from my recollection might be wrong, but I feel like he was doing well with the rest of the playoffs, but... Yes. Uh, he gets to the finals and just, you know, kind of pulls a Nick Anderson and forgets <laughs> how to play basketball for a few games. And Yes, and yeah. yeah, it was in particular those first two games in Phoenix. Phoenix had home court advantage in that series against Chicago. Yeah. And yeah, he just uh, absolutely didn't show up, and Phoenix lost both of those games. Then, you know, it was one of those maybe where, um, first finals appearance was, you know, he was a little nervous and it took him a few games, but if it takes you a couple games, that's just a little bit too much. Like right. by the time they were down Oh two and then heading on the road, it was too much to overcome, even though they made a valiant effort and oh, nearly yeah. brought it to a game seven in Phoenix. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, Certainly in that matchup, I like Mike Bibby a little bit, even though maybe Kevin Johnson was a slightly better player. Um, but yeah. I, I like Bibby in terms of he stepped up in the big in the big moments, um, oh. especially in that 2002 series against the Lakers. He hit a game winner in Game Five that won the game for the Kings. Hit clutch shot after clutch shot in that series. Like that whole series was close, so you yeah. had constant. Whereas you know um, the other interesting thing, you know, talking about clutch performances, you look at the power forward going back to the Barkley Weber uh, situation uh, Weber kind of shied away a little bit from Hmm. those moments whereas Barkley I think was you know 
when they needed to win, he brought it. Yeah. And even in that game two that they lost against Chicago, oh, yeah. uh, Barkley was like, you know, we lost the first game at home. We got to win this. They didn't win it, but he played extremely well. Oh, yeah. Uh, definitely another clutch performer. I, I think uh, Barkley, in terms of stepping up in a big game and his rebounding, would be really big for this matchup. So. Um. The one thing I think would give the Kings a little bit of a advantage is the play of Lottie Devox versus the center play mm. of the Suns. You know, yeah, with the likes with of Mark West and Oliver Miller, those guys were more just out there to kind of just be the what you would call like the you know when you mentioned Luke Longley on the Bulls was just a very <laughs> average center. Right. I feel like those guys were kind of in that vein as well. Um, even though Oliver Miller was young and looked like he had a ton of potential, he never really put it together in his career. And Mark West, you know, again, not you know trying okay. to bash him. He's a solid. Yeah. I mean, if you're in the NBA, you're a really good basketball player. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, but uh, you know. Uh, didn't do anything that exceptionally well. Whereas Devox, again, I mentioned his passing. He could even step out and hit the three. Uh, you know, he could post up a little bit as well. Was one of the best floppers to ever play the game. That's very true. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's certain matchups. I think the Kings have a little bit of advantage. Um, the part that I would think the Kings would struggle with, especially defensively, is, you know, their main stopper, Doug Christie, was better on, you know, wing scores. And the Suns didn't really rely, the 93 Suns didn't rely on any wing scoring other than right. Dan Marley, but he was just doing catch-and-shoot threes. Right. Uh, playing off of the likes of Barkley and Johnson getting double-teamed. Um, so Doug Christie kind of in that series it is maybe um, not as important uh, because he doesn't have a good matchup for a guy that he can really shut down. Yeah. Um, and as far as the Suns are concerned, or the 93 Suns, I don't think they had too many defensive stoppers. They they didn't. Uh, they had a lot of length, but you could see, especially in the matchup with Jordan, they tried to throw. So, like, take a Richard Dumas, a um, uh, really long, tall guy, and pretty quick, but not a great defender. Yeah, and another young guy that had a ton of promise, but right. for reasons off the, for off the court reasons, wasn't able to fulfill exactly. that promise. But and I remember them throwing Johnson, Marley, Ainge, everyone at you know some of the guards on the Bulls, and uh, yeah, not great defenders. Okay, length to where you can tip some passes, but yeah. So. Um, like looking at the '93 Suns, like again, their offense playing through Barkley most of the time. Occasionally, would do some Kevin Johnson, would run in transition and run some pick and roll. Um, but certainly, the Kings would have to double team Barkley. Definitely, uh, they uh, in the same manner that uh, you know in that 2002 series against the Lakers. You know, they just got dominated by Shaq they would get dominated in a similar fashion by Barkley yeah um but the fact that they were able to withstand Shaq's constant torment that he <laughs> inflicted upon them and were still likely you know favorites to win that series and probably should have won that series I think they would probably have a little bit too much for that Suns team mm. but it certainly would be a really entertaining and high scoring series for sure yeah I I haven't watched a lot of the O2 Kings so I'm not sure that I can really you know, declare either one, but I think you make a lot of good points and that would be really fun to watch. 
Okay, so let's go to the next matchup. Uh, we've got the uh, the 2007 seven second or less Phoenix Suns, you know, with Steve Nash and Amari Stoudemire, Sean Marion, uh, mm-hmm. versus those late 90s Utah Jazz teams with your Stockton and Malone. And one of the reasons I really thought this was an interesting matchup to kind of compare is, you know, you've got similar strengths in terms of the roster construction. You know, both teams had a really good point guard. You know, the Suns with Steve Nash and the Jazz with John Stockton. Both of them also were, you know, much better offensive point guards than they were defensive point guards. (laughs) Very true. Um, But then also you've got these athletic um, pick-and-roll big men in the likes of Amari Stoudemire versus Cara Malone. Of course, Cara Malone, a much more experienced player in those late 90s Jazz teams, whereas Stoudemire was just this young freak athlete uh, that uh, could, you know, play above the rim. Uh, but uh, certainly um, a very interesting matchup, but also, again, two teams that, um, in terms of pace of play, couldn't be any more different. <laughs> yeah, for sure. The the late 90s Jazz team is a very slow, you know, running pick and rolls. Both teams run the pick and roll, but it would be walking the ball up with John Stockton and running a pick and roll with Malone and, you know, trying to get a good shot. And, uh Yeah. The Suns, like you said, seven seconds or less. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, you know, you talk about the shot clock, and um, you're talking about those Jazz teams would probably get into their first pick and roll with about 10 seconds on the shot clock, whereas the Suns would be running a pick and roll with about 18 on the shot clock. Right. You know, and I think the advantage of, and, you know, um, there are advantages and disadvantages to that. For one, the advantage for, you know, the Suns team playing quick is, you know, if that first pick and roll doesn't work out, you've still got enough time to run a second or even a third pick and roll. And, you know, as a defense, if you only have to stop one pick and roll, it's a lot easier than having to stop three. You know, and Steve Nash would just keep the ball, keep dribbling. Even if it didn't work, he would just run back out and run another one. Right. And, um, you know, just hoping for that second where the defense makes a mistake that he can take advantage of. Uh, But at the same time, you look at those Jazz teams, and they were a lot better defensively Mm. uh, because when you play that slower pace and you're focused more on getting back in transition on defense and stopping those easy baskets and also making your opponents work for all 24 seconds of the shot clock, Right. Uh, it makes it a lot easier for you to be a good, solid defensive team, which they were. Totally. It's just a more grinding style of play, for sure. Which, yeah, those, you know, those Suns teams were very much about, let's try to outscore the opponent as opposed to try to slow them down enough. Whereas the Jazz team... Uh, you know, you talk about those final series against the Bulls. There were a lot of like 84-82 finals yeah. in, that seri- in those series. Really low-scoring games, for yeah, sure. Yeah, and against a player <laughs> like Michael Jordan, being able to slow a team with that kind of a weapon down that much is pretty impressive. For sure. Um, yeah. Well, and the other thing to think about, um, and uh, I, I read an article on a website that I would recommend anybody who's really into basketball uh, look into called Cleaning the Glass. Uh, it was talking about how um, teams that play with two big men, two legitimate big men, just are that much better defensively because of the shots they force. You know, Phoenix, hmm. they would play with uh, Amari Stoudemire, who was a natural power forward. They played him at center. 
And then Sean Marion, who was a natural small forward, they played him at power forward. Yeah. So the more you're playing down, the more effective you are offensively because you've got more versatile guys at the big man positions. But at the same time, you've got less size, less rim protection at those spots. Right. Uh, so those types of teams tend to give up more shots at the basket because they don't have as much rim protection. And then when you're more vulnerable at the basket, your help defenders tend to come in more, which opens up three-point shots. So even though you're, you know, those Suns teams were great offensively, they were poor defensively a lot in large part because of the personnel they had on the floor, whereas yeah. Utah consistently played with you know, even though Greg Ostertag wasn't the greatest center in the world, just playing that with that size makes a big difference defensively. Totally. Um, yeah, great. They're a really good defensive team. Byron Russell at uh, small forward, both him and Hornacek were able to match up on Jordan at different times and, mm-hmm. you know, doing as good a job as you can do on someone like that. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and, you know, really smart basketball players, too. High basketball IQ, especially Hornacek. out of yeah. Hornacek and Stockton, even though that's not the most athletic or physically intimidating backcourt you'll ever see. <laughs> Maybe the least. Yeah. Um, but they were very smart, high basketball IQ, knew where to be. Right. And that is as much uh, as an importance for defense as even the athletic tools and talent. Totally. Um, so... You know, it's definitely a, a, a huge differentiator in terms of, um, you know, the offense versus the defense and the the, the fast-paced game versus the slow-paced game. Yeah. Uh, so it would really be, um, you know, who could control the tempo, who could control the style of play. And when you've got two teams with such great point <laughs> guards, uh, it's interesting. Who do you imagine would be able to win that battle and control the flow of the game? That's... A really interesting question. Uh, I'm I'm not sure. I mean, these are two of the best point guards to ever play, and they're so similar in their like skills packages that they have. Both amazing passers. They both are good shooters. I would say maybe Nash would be a better three point shooter. Would you say? Well, I know. Um, I think a large part of that just comes down to um, you know the time period that they play. Right. You know, Nash was kind of. Uh, because he was born later, the three-point shot was more a part of his right. process of becoming a basketball player. Mm-hmm. Um, for his era, John Stockton, I would say, was yeah. nearly as good of a three-point shooter as Nash was for his. Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good point. Um, but yeah, they were they're both pass-first yes. point guards, um, guys that were yeah. Even though they could easily score twenty plus a game, definitely usually chose not to to get their team involved, right. which is scary from a defensive perspective where say you do everything else to make sure the other four guys don't score and then Nash or Stockton end up you know hitting a three or getting an easy layup on you anytime they want um, right for a high percentage shot yeah I'm not sure <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> a cop-out answer um, I mean I guess since it's my team I, I would go with John Stockton and mm-hmm. put up his assist stats and say that's the reason I don't know right but um yeah what do you think I I think, um, you know, in general, I uh, I tend to lean towards the the defensive teams, mm. you know, being a little bit more if if they're equally good on defense versus the other team being equally good on offense. I kind of lean towards the defensive teams, um, especially in those the '90s. I think that was a more defensive era. The defense, the great defensive teams dominated, whereas, right. um, you know. 
nowadays, I think the more offensive teams are starting to be the more um, dominating and best record types of teams. Very true. Um, but but yeah, it, it definitely would be a very um, very interesting matchup, and uh, I I would probably go with the Jazz by nose just mm-hmm. because I think the um, the collective experience that yeah. they would have with the likes of Stockton and Malone, and uh, you've got a sharpshooter in Hornacek, uh, and I think they also were a little deeper than the like, you know, with the likes of Antoine Carr, and yeah. um, you know, you had even Howard Isley was right. a solid backup point guard. I think they were slightly deeper than that Suns team. Um, the Suns did have Diaw off the bench, who was a really solid, true. solid we bench player, her, but. Yeah. Beyond that, the D'Antoni, you generally played about seven guys. Yeah. And in that 07 season, they, they lost to the Spurs in large part because in, in uh, and we talked about this in the last episode, uh, in in the game, uh, game I believe it was five, uh, the, the crucial, you know, game, they... Steve Nash was basically hip-checked into the scorer's table by Robert Ory. Oh, And, uh, you know, that started a bit of a, you know, um, frenzy where a couple of Phoenix Suns players came off the bench, and the two players were Stoudemire and Diaw, and they were both suspended for the critical um, next game. And actually, no, it might have been game four that that happened, Hmm. and they were suspended for the critical game five where the series was tied at two. And, uh, you know, they weren't able to win, and San Antonio ended up winning that series in six. Uh, but, um, you know, that that showed you the lack of depth that that Suns team had. I mean, I guess most teams would struggle if their <laughs> top two big guys were suspended for a game. But, right. But at the same time, like, they didn't have many answers in terms of who to play in, in their stead. Uh, so I, yeah. I would give the slight edge to the Jazz. Uh, those were some really solid basketball teams, but that that 07 Suns team was was pretty incredible offensively. Definitely, yeah. I and we haven't talked a whole lot about Carl uh, Malone, with, with this, and he's obviously another one of the greatest players to ever play. And maybe that might be why I would put um, the Jazz over them again slightly, just because they've got two of the greatest players of, of all time. Where mm-hmm. Suns uh, still a great great team, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're relying on you know a very young, extremely talented guy in Stoudemire. Yeah. Uh, but uh, you know he was a guy that, um, again, very inexperienced, still in his early twenties, uh, and uh, you know was relying mostly on his athleticism and gave he gave Tim Duncan some problems in that 07 series. Oh he yeah. Definitely did just because you know as good as Duncan was, he was never like a an elite athlete. Right. Um, so I feel like Stoudemire would give the Jazz similar issues, oh, yeah. uh, but with the Jazz collective size, I think they would be able to contain him a little bit more, whereas Malone was a little bit more efficient picking and popping and knocking down that 18- to 20-footer, which Stoudemire wasn't as adept at doing. Right, right. Uh, so uh, I think we both agreed that the Jazz would probably prevail in a, in a tight series, of Very course. Close. I think all of these series we... We picked because we think they would be really competitive. Yeah. Um, but uh, let's go to the next one. We've got the 1993 New York Knicks, uh, which you're going to uh, take control over, and I'm <laughs> going to be the coach of the 2000 Portland Trailblazers. Okay. Um, so 
uh, when you think of the 93 Knicks teams, or even just the 90s Knicks teams yeah. in general, yeah, yeah. Uh, what were the strengths of those teams, and why were they so effective and uh, in several years came so close to uh, breaking through and winning a title? So uh, those are teams with uh, Pat Riley as the, the head coach, um, who's one of the greatest uh, head coaches in NBA history. Very hard-nosed, tough team mm-hmm. uh i mean just which hard. shows you the versatility that pat riley had as a head coach because right. he coached the 80s showtime <laughs> lakers which were a very kind of finesse team mm-hmm. and then because of the personnel that he had that that worked in that physical brute style uh he was able to transition and be a very good coach for that team as well exactly um so yeah, you got you got Patrick Ewing, um, great center inside, um, pretty good shooter for for a center as well. Oh, yeah. um, that you know could pop out for a little mid range shot there, um, and obviously down low as well. He was in this there. day and age, he would be shooting threes like he had that kind of touch that totally. he was capable of doing that. Yeah, but just in the nineties, yeah. that's like a no no. You just <laughs> never let people shoot threes unless you're Charles Barkley. <laughs> a ton of them and was terrible. That's one thing I, I think Charles Barkley. Somehow would have even been greater if he just would have someone would have told him, "Hey, just stop, never shoot a three. Right? You know, you're so good at every other aspect of the game." Um, yeah, uh, Patrick Ewing inside. You had um, you know some really good defenders out there. John Starks um, out there at the shooting guard position, who would usually get that matchup on Jordan. Um, some really tough uh, enforcers. You know, which I'm not sure, um, I'm trying to think of people nowadays that would fit that description. Maybe like a Draymond Green, okay, kind yeah. of, mm-hmm. um, where it's the tough player that if things are getting a little tough inside, he's going to be the one to kind of step in. Right. Um, and, and so I'm talking about Anthony Mason and Charles Oakley. Um, and maybe Charles Smith a little bit as well. Yeah. Charles um, Oakley's a bad dude. I mean, <laughs> you don't want to mess with that guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, uh, you know, Doc Rivers coming off the bench as well. Um, a, a veteran, I would say at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a good, solid collection of people. I'm, I'm not sure Patrick Ewing was, you know, a guy that was going out there scoring like 50 points a game or anything, but, you know, solid what would you say, like 25 points a game and then, Yeah, you know. I mean, he consistently did 20-plus throughout his entire career. Right. He was healthy. Blocking uh, shots as well. Yeah, good rebounder. Um, and I think uh, a lot of people don't view Patrick Ewing as highly uh, because in later years of his career he had some knee issues and wasn't nearly the athlete that he was early on. But those early 90s teams, those Knicks teams with Pat, Patrick Ewing was a legitimate, like, great player. Yeah. One of the top 10 to 15 best players in the league at that time when the league was really stacked with talent. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, you talk about all the talent uh, that's in the NBA today. Uh, this has been the best talent boom since that era. Right. Uh, but the, those early to, you know, early 90s years, the NBA was, uh, you know, really stacked. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Knicks, very good team, great defensive team, and really matched up well against that Bulls team, which is hard to do. (laughs) Right, Um, and, you know, I talked earlier about um, the idea of the bigger you play, probably the better defensively you're going to be, even not even talking about your defensive talent, just the bigger you play, 
um, the the less chances teams have of getting shots near the basket. And the Knicks played huge. You know, they yeah. consistently played with Patrick Ewing, Charles Oakley, and even a lot of times like uh, Charles Smith or Anthony Mason at the three. Yeah. So instead of like the Phoenix Suns team that we talked <laughs> about playing down, they played up yeah. so that a small forward was really a power forward. Mm-hmm. So they played with three bigs. Uh, constantly, um, you know, trying to prevent anything near the hoop, being very physical anytime you drove there to try to get an easy basket. So they were extremely tough, physical team. And also, you know, the bigger you play, the better at rebounding you're going to be. So exactly. they were a really good offensive and defensive rebounding team as well. For sure, for sure. Yeah, um, what about the Blazers here? Yeah, so the 2000 Blazers, of course, they lost in that heartbreaking series against the Lakers, the first of the Lakers, three-peat with Shaq and Kobe. Uh, they lost in, in that seven-game series where they're up 18 heading into the fourth quarter. Uh, but they had a really, um, you know, they didn't really have any star players, but they had a really balanced roster. You know, they had the likes of Steve Smith, who was a sharpshooter that was really good in the 90s. Um, and then they had the likes of Scottie Pippen, who was coming off, you know, his post-Bulls career, but still a pretty pretty darn good basketball player. Oh, yeah. Uh, they had the likes of Arvidas Sabonis, who, again, had favorites. suffered, yeah, had suffered some injuries, had an Achilles tear at one point, definitely was slow and a lumbering player, but could still hit a three, was a great passer still, was just a high basketball IQ guy, and a huge man. Right. Uh, <laughs> At 7'4", or whatever. Right. You don't usually have that combination of all of those things that you just said. <laughs> right. <laughs> like hitting threes, gigantic, enormous person, but also really good passer. Yeah. Um, right, which, which uh, you know, just saying that player, even when he was a terrible athlete at that point, is a valuable player. Now, imagine in the 80s when he was actually a great athlete. Right. And wow. you still had all that stuff. I mean, it's just unfair. Yeah. Um, but at that time, you know, obviously just a role player, but still a solid one at that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you had a very young Rasheed Wallace, who was kind of their go-to option offensively. Uh, you know, he wasn't extremely efficient on that end, but he could get his shot off just about on anybody. Yeah. And, you know, was, um, you know, was a, a skilled enough passer and a guy that could hit enough shots that kept the defense honest. Uh, So, you know, they weren't this amazing offensive team, but they had enough guys uh, that could, um, could do some things that they kind of played that style where you never knew where the ball was going and anybody could hurt you. Damon Stoudemire was the point guard. He was a real super quick guy. Oh, that's right. Uh, Short player, but uh, could run the break and um, get to the basket. Uh, so, you know, they were a really, really solid team. Had Detlef Shrimp off the bench. Mm. It was a solid, uh, you know, wingman that could score. Uh, just a really solid all-around basketball team. They even had a young Jermaine O'Neal that, uh, that backed up, and I think he was their third center or something, but played a little bit here and there. Uh, but, uh, yeah, really solid basketball team. Uh, probably a better defensive team because if you've got the basketball IQ of a guy like Scottie Pippen mm-hmm. and Arvidas Sabonis and, and guys like Steve Smith, that uh, they were, um, you know, a team that didn't beat themselves. Yeah. Uh, but uh, at at times, and especially in that fourth quarter of that Game 7 against the Lakers, could go a little cold offensively. Yeah. 
but the Knicks, you know, they weren't, you know, this super amazing offensive team either. Yeah. So um, this would definitely be a low-scoring series. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I do like the idea of the Knicks having Patrick Ewing to throw the ball to as a bit of an advantage over the likes of the Blazers throwing it into Rashid. Mm. Yeah. I mean, again, another one of these really, really close series. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, so so are you saying you'd give the little, the edge to the uh, the Knicks? Yeah, in this I, I think so. Um, I think that even though both teams were um, not great offensively, I think the Knicks would have been a slightly better offensive team, hmm. uh, even though they were playing three bigs, whereas the Blazers kind of spread out the floor a little bit. Could were a better three point shooting team because their center and power forward could both shoot threes. Yeah. Um, but uh, the having the go-to option in Ewing, I think, is going to be yeah. uh, you know, pretty crucial in a, in a, in a seven-game series. And I also think the Knicks just had a little bit higher level on the defensive end yeah. uh, than, than the Blazers did. Totally. Um, yeah, I, I, I think I'd agree with that. Yeah, so the edge. Um, we've got... So far, we've got the. Uh, did we both agree that the 2002 Kings would beat the '93 Suns in a tight series, or were you kind of you were still questionable about that? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of on the fence. Yeah. Uh, I might lean towards the Suns. Okay. Uh, just so, just because of that's Barclays, good. It's but... good to have a little bit of a disagreement here and there. Yeah. Um, and then we both agreed that the. The Jazz would be the '97, '98 versions of the Jazz would probably yeah. beat those Seven Suns, but it, again, close. Yeah, uh, we both believe the '93 Knicks would probably get the edge over the 2000 Blazers. Mm-hmm. Um, so now to the next one, we've got uh, the next one we're doing is a couple of teams that wouldn't really even qualify <laughs> as our greatest uh, teams to never win a title because neither of these teams even made a conference final, <laughs> let alone an NBA finals to lose. Yeah. Uh, but I thought this would be an interesting comparison because both of these teams had a decent um, you know, three or four years where they were pretty darn good but just couldn't quite get over the hump for various reasons, whether it was you know a matchup or just a poor performance here or there. Uh, but I thought it would be interesting to compare – uh, kind of a couple of the teams that were a little bit disappointing in terms of not or as far as they advanced despite having a lot of talent. And that is the, um, you know, the 1980s Hawks, specifically the, the 88, 87, 88 teams. Uh, and then the um, more recent Los Angeles Clippers, which of course that's done now that Chris Paul is gone. Right. Uh, but those teams from 2014 to 15, uh, you know, or I guess I should say 2014 to 2016. Uh, the, in 2016, they had some injuries, but in 2014 and 15, they were relatively healthy. And in 2014, they lost to the OKC Thunder, uh, you know, with Durant and Westbrook. Right. Uh, and then in 2015, lost that series to Houston uh, against uh, James Harden and Dwight Howard, where they were up 3-1 and had that epic collapse. Uh, in Game 6, where they were up, you know, 20-plus points and, and lost it at home. Uh, but I thought this was interesting for multiple reasons. Uh, but, um, you know, looking at those Hawks teams, what were the strengths um, the strengths of that group? Uh, well, you got to start with uh, Dominique Wilkins. Of course. One of the best uh, scorers that I've, I've ever seen. I mean, once he got hot, it was insane. And one of my – the favorite or one of my favorite games I've ever watched and then continue to rewatch is him going against Larry Bird 
um, a couple of those games where they're battling back and forth, and it's just shot for shot. Yeah. You know, Larry Bird ends up hitting some crazy fadeaway three off of, you know, him, and then he ends up dunking on someone or hitting another crazy fadeaway shot. Um, incredible athlete. If he had any of the control of, like, a LeBron, that's what makes another thing that makes LeBron so amazing is he's so athletic and also is so skilled in passing and everything else. Mm-hmm. Dominique is, I think, while very, very skilled, closer to that realm of just run past people and dunk on them. Yes. You know? Um, but but other people on that team, you got Doc Rivers um, at the point guard there. You got Kevin Willis, who we were talking about before, was an all-star. Um, what what did we say that he was he was averaging? I couldn't remember stat-wise. Uh, yeah, but. in the night. I think he made the all-star team in 92. Yeah. So, uh, he averaged, I think, 18 points and over 15 boards a game. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, he was a really solid rebounder, just a solid role-playing big man. I would compare him similarly to like those, uh, you know, those Davis brothers for the Pacers in okay. the '90s. Just that kind of tough guy that could rebound and be physical, and also, you know, had a little bit more skill than you would think just by looking at him. But mm-hmm. you know, a solid guy to have in your starting lineup for sure. Totally. Uh, Tree Rollins uh, inside, uh, just very, very tall, <laughs> big person inside, which we were talking about before with the 90s. Hence the tree. Yeah, Hence he... the tree. <laughs> and then the opposite of that, you got Spud Webb, uh, five <laughs> foot uh, six or five seven, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, point guard won the, the dunk contest, and I got to look at the poster on the wall, 1986, <laughs> in the basement down here. I've got slam dunk championships on the wall. Um, that was the first thing I noticed when I came <laughs> down here, yes. Yeah, uh, amazing athlete. Uh, Pretty good point guard coming off the bench, you know, I thought was fairly solid. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to be, I think, pretty solid if you're at that Earl Boykin, Spud Webb, Muggsy Bugs height. Because right. if not, you would just get destroyed by everyone. Um, yeah, what are your thoughts, though, on the, the LA Clippers? Because that's a really good team. Yeah, I mean, the uh, I would say the 2015, um, or I guess the, yeah, the twenty. 20- 14-15 group was kind of the peak of the Chris Paul-Blake Griffin duo. Uh, Blake Griffin, uh, you know, came into the league, I believe, in 2009 or 10, and, you know, at first really couldn't shoot and was just this great athlete. Right. Um, but um, now, you know, you look at Blake Griffin this season and he's he's hitting three, like pull-up threes. You know, he's improved his skill so drastically. Uh, but that, like, those couple of seasons, I think, was the perfect comp combination of he developed his skills enough but then he also was still that nuclear athlete where he's lost some athleticism now right Uh, i think that's an interesting thing when we talk about guys like jordan and lebron which we'll get to at some point right um you know the different stages of their career where you've got the super athletic portion when they're young you've got the super skilled portion when they're old and then there's that middle ground where it's a perfect combination (laughs) right um but that's where blake griffin was at he was you know such a dominant force it was hard to prevent him from getting to the basket but it also really developed that mid-range jumper right um you know is a good passer as well and chris paul obviously uh you know one of the best point guards to ever play the game and then you had off of them you had a guy like jj reddick who's a sharpshooter um you know really good player off the ball could run off screens keep the the off-ball defenders occupied and then you had DeAndre Jordan, who's a seven-foot like mm-hmm. nuclear athlete that uh, you know 
Um, normally you wouldn't think like a couple of guys in Griffin and Jordan would be able to play well together, but they actually did because Jordan could catch those lobs and he'd give them what they call vertical spacing where instead of spreading out on the perimeter, you could just throw the ball up anywhere and he could go and get it. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, you, that pick and roll with Paul and Griffin was so effective because, you know, Paul could get to his spots and hit a shot. If he took that away, he'd hit the little pocket pass to Griffin. Griffin, if he had the shot, he could knock it down. If not, he could drive. And if Jordan's man came over, he would just throw the lob. If he didn't, Griffin could finish. Right. And then, obviously, if the defense collapsed on Griffin, you know, off the ball, you could find Reddick for a three. You know, they had all of these different options and different uh, tools. uh, And those four guys, I think, complemented each other extremely well. Uh, Oh, yeah. And it was just unfortunate a couple of choke jobs and back-to-back years prevented them from making conference finals in 2014 against the Thunder. Uh, I believe it was game five series tied at two. Chris Paul had about three turnovers in the last minute of the game, which was Uh. super uncharacteristic for him. You know, he normally is one of the best players in terms of, you know, assist to turnover ratio and all of that. Uh, But he just completely choked blew that game and then the thunder ended up winning and then the following year i mentioned earlier up 3-1 against houston uh you know they take game five for granted in houston and just kind of give that game yeah come back home they're up like 20 points near the end of the third quarter and then josh smith and Corey brewer decide for the rockets that they can actually oh, shoot the basketball that's right and uh, they hit like seven threes <laughs> yeah and harden is on the bench the whole time and houston's just dominating and they come all the way back and win and then they lose in game seven in houston it's just one of those things are just like i like how could that happen right it was one of the more baffling things i've ever witnessed and it's one of those series where you know most of the time in a seven game series you sit there and say uh the better team whoever wins is the better team but that was one of those where i'm just like the clippers were better at basketball than the rockets it was just some crazy coincidence that uh, you know in some strange cosmic event that took place that allowed josh smith to become the best basketball player in the world (laughs) for a quarter yeah (laughs) and that was the difference um and uh you know so those clippers teams were really really good um i think they had a little bit more star talent than those hawks teams did yeah Uh, but certainly the hawks were a pretty good balanced team and wilkins was really tough to stop oh for sure Uh, he uh i think the weakness in wilkins's game was you know obviously defensively wasn't strong and also offensively you know i would compare him more to um I mean, not in the style of play exactly, but a mellow Carmelo okay. in terms of yeah. it's more about him getting his own baskets, and he's great at getting his own shots and totally. scoring the ball, but he's not really making his teammates around him much better. Definitely. Uh, that's I like that uh, a lot, actually, as a, uh, a matchup there. Uh, you know, getting being able to get his mid-range shot off uh, against pretty much anyone. I yeah. think with Carmelo, it's more, you know, he's able to use jabs and get his, his shot up and uh, Wilkins would just jump over you yes. and shoot the ball over your head. Yeah. Um, but really effective. 
Yeah. yeah, you know, you talk about a jump shot, and, <laughs> you know, there are a lot of people, their jump shot is more like a set shot, where they're not getting off the ground much, but Dominique Wilkins could elevate, and he would elevate on every jumper. You know, there was, it was really difficult to get up there and block his shot. For sure. Which is why, like, you know, he could have been, you know, one of the greatest players of all time if his skill level was a little bit higher. Right. Uh, but he was one of those guys that, as a competitor, he played hard all the time. And also, you know, he was a streaky shooter, even though he wasn't super Very great. Streaky. But, you know, in that, you know, you talk about that matchup in the in the 88 series against the Celtics where the Hawks lost in seven. And it was that the game is literally referred to as the Wilkins-Bird duel. Yeah. Um, it's one of the greatest games to watch. I urge anyone that hasn't seen it to check it out uh but yeah it is it's truly bird and wilkins going back and forth uh again neither of them were great defenders so they couldn't stop each other (laughs) (laughs) they were both awesome offensively so they were both just absolutely on fire neither of them wanted their team to lose uh but bird just uh you know that's why he was just a little bit better is he he got the best of wilkins on that day exactly yeah uh but both of these teams you know suffered some really tough playoff losses obviously missing out on the conference finals because bird puts up i don't know i think it was like in the 40s something in there and yeah. i think 20 plus in the fourth quarter it was just a crazy performance <laughs> right uh, that that's obviously pretty heartbreaking um but in terms of you know you're looking at the hawks uh, what are some things that concern you in terms of playing the Clippers? Uh, well, I mean, looking inside, I'm not sure that they would be. Well, okay. Uh, first of all, Chris Paul is amazing. He's one of the best point cards of all time. Yeah. I'm not sure that they would really have an answer for him. Uh, you and know, I, we should also say, uh, similar to when we did the Warrior, the 17 Warriors versus the 96 Bulls, and mm. that. Steve Kerr is the coach of the Warriors, right? And the player on the Bulls. We've got a, a, the same situation. Doc Rivers. Doc Rivers, the coach of the Clippers, and a player on the Hawks. So again, I got to reiterate that the the Doc Rivers on the Hawks <laughs> does not know, uh, you know, the tendencies of the Clippers team and vice versa. Right. The Doc Rivers coach does not know the Doc Rivers the player so much better than he should. Right. And, Just and needed to clarify. Totally, that. yeah. Uh, we don't want to throw a whole space time for no reason whatsoever because this entire thing is pointless. But right. I do. <laughs> no, totally. Um, but yeah, Doc Rivers, you know, who eventually will be the coach of the the opponent's team. Um, while he's a good defender and a solid player, I don't see him being able to to slow down Chris Paul. And I'm not sure that Tree Rollins inside or, or anyone inside is going to be able to slow down. Uh, Blake Griffin and and uh, Jordan, mm-hmm. especially when they start getting on a roll with those lobs to the basket, um, so that concerns me. And then also the outside shooting that you're going to have with both Paul, but you know JJ Redick filling it up from outside. Um, I don't know. I feel like Wilkins would score a lot of points, and that and would be that really was, cool. You know, that's the thing with the Clippers team is their weak point. You know, I mentioned the big four of. Uh, Chris Paul, Blake Griffin, DeAndre Jordan, and J.J. Redick, but their weak point was the small forward spot, which is where Wilkins plays. So obviously that would be a huge mismatch, and it would be a huge challenge for the Clippers to stop him. Right. It was a a challenge for anybody. Right, exactly. (laughs) So I would almost see this, if if I got to make a prediction on this, you know, game that will never happen. Um, I, I would say Dominique probably scores 40 or something, but I would say the Clippers end up 
pulling it out and winning. Okay, I, I completely agree with you on this one. So cool. we've agreed on three out of four. And, All right. Uh, we've got our final one coming up here. So uh, this final one, I think, uh, you know, we... Uh, our first four was all about teams that, uh, you know, didn't win a title. Uh, but we also talked in the last episode about a couple of teams that, um, or I should say in the part one where uh, we talked about the greatest teams. And this uh, this category is going to be teams that won uh, with just one star player. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to those super teams that we were talking about uh, of the greatest teams of all time. Uh, but uh, in terms of this matchup, we've got the 94-95 versions of the Rockets. Uh, I don't know if you have a preference of which one you like more um, versus the 2011 Dallas Mavericks. So let's start with that. Okay. Uh, are we going to do the 94 Rockets, the first championship team, or the defending championship team in 95? So the basic difference between the two is that Otis Thorpe, um, a power forward uh, who I thought was a really solid player is on the 94 team and they end up trading him in 95 for Clyde Drexler and a few other little pieces. Right. But yeah. Right. Uh, but the, the big piece is Clyde Drexler who was at that time, the second best uh, in 95. I don't know if Mitch Richmond, where he fits into this, um, but one of the top, let's say three uh, shooting guards. Yeah, I would say Richmond had surpassed him. That's a good point. But yeah, he was he was still pretty pretty darn good. He was a little bit older, but but yeah, still very effective. Right. So if I have to pick between the two, first off, I probably say ninety five, just because mm-hmm. now you've got two really big scoring threats with with Akeem and and Drexler there. Um, but obviously, both of the teams are really good. Um, yeah. Okay, so we're doing 95, 95 Rockets versus 2011 Dallas Mavericks. Let's start with the star players first off. Okay. Um, I think, uh, you know, you've got both of these guys are top 20 players of all time. Definitely. Uh, Dirk Nowitzki uh, is going to go down as the greatest shooting big man in the history of the game. For sure. Uh, the 2011 playoffs was his swan song. He was just absolutely spectacular the entire time. He's just unstoppable. The guy's seven feet tall. <laughs> you throw it to him on the elbow, and he's he just can look at the entire floor. That was, that was what was crazy is, you know, most of the time, you throw the ball on the post, and the guy's got his back to half the court. Right. So it's a lot harder to judge where the double team's coming from, who's open, and all that. But because Dirk was such a great shooter, he was this, a similar threat at outside of the free throw line. So yeah. he can examine the entire floor yep. and see, okay, if you're going to double me, I've got a perfect pass to make. And he also had you know, a guy under the hoop that he could throw to as well. Yeah. Um, but... So you've got Dirk versus Hakeem, and obviously Hakeem, you know, great on both ends of the floor. The advantage Hakeem had over Dirk, obviously, is his defense. Right. It's a lot better. Um, I, I would say Dirk has the edge offensively, uh, but yeah. Hakeem was still really good on, on that end as well. He could post up, he could face up as well, uh, and he could hit a mid-range jumper. Uh, so it's interesting to think about, you know, both teams – played basically through their big man, but very different ways. You know, yeah. Hakeem mostly on the block. Uh, but, you know, the goal, either that guy scores, the star scores, or you get it out for a three, and that's how both teams played. Yeah, um, and, and so maybe we should talk about some of those those people on the perimeter. The complementary pieces, uh, yeah. Because, yeah, it's, it's actually weird how similar these styles of play are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, um, you got Kenny... 
either Kenny the Jet Smith or Sam Cassell mm-hmm. would start and at they, that point guard position. And they position. played similar amounts of minutes, if I remember correctly. Yeah, it, it kind of seemed... I can't remember who the coach was, but it, it seemed to be where whoever Rudy was... Rudy Yanovich. That's yeah. who it was, yeah. Whoever was having the best game at the time would get to you know finish yeah. that game. And both Which of them were... a good problem to have. It's kind of, yeah. uh, you know, I would compare it in baseball where you're playing the against a left-handed pitcher, you play the right-handed batter, and then if, uh, against the right-handed pitcher, you, you do the left-handed. Yeah. Um, you know, kind of just picking your spots and saying, okay, this guy's on fire, let's just let him continue playing. Right. Um, and and uh, when you've got two players that are pretty similar... Uh, yeah, playing the guy with the hot hand kind of elevates that position for your team. Totally. Um, and then at the two, uh, with this version, you've got um, uh, Clyde Drexler, and then also, uh, what's his name, Maxwell? What's his first Vernon name? Maxwell. Vernon yeah. Maxwell, who was one of the most hot-headed players I've ever seen. With I mean, literally try and get in a fight almost every game, it seemed like, <laughs> with the other team or with his own team sometimes. Yeah. Um, but uh, Maxwell was a pretty good uh, uh, shooting guard. Uh, and Clyde Drexler, obviously, while he's a little older, was pretty good on that team. Uh, not a – I mean, how was he at, at three-point? Clyde Drexler? Yeah, Clyde Drexler. Um, yeah, he was, he was solid. He wasn't a sharpshooter. Right. Um, I think he was, I would say, more of a slasher type of player. Definitely. Um, you know, they, the nickname Clyde the Glide because he mm-hmm. glided through the air. You know, he was just a really good athlete, could finish at the rim. But, yeah, he, he was a solid shooter. Mm-hmm. I think he improved his shot as his career went on. And, um, um, you know, I think an earlier version of Drexler, even though he might have been better, may have been worse for this particular team. Okay. Because of the style of play, you wanted them, you wanted him to play off the off of Hakeem more. Yeah. The fact that he could knock down some more shots as he was older was a little bit better. Totally. And and they also could post him up every now and then too, mm-hmm. which is a nice uh, other threat. And then quickly, because uh, I, I know I'm kind of rambling, uh, they had uh, uh, Ellie. At the small forward spot, so young another player, but uh, he played, uh, you know, um, he played like a vet. He was a guy that was not afraid of the big moments, even right. though he was pretty young. And then speaking of big moments, you've got a uh, big shot Bob with yeah. uh, uh, Robert before Orr. he had even really come to that nickname. You know, this was when he was younger, but yeah, obviously, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're clutch, you're clutch. Exactly, <laughs> one uh, of the the most the luckiest players in terms of the ball would just literally roll to him in the biggest. Yeah moment and he's wide open yeah um but yeah uh you know really good shooters all around and obviously with Hakeem Olajuwon he's uh maybe other than uh Kevin McHale probably has the best package of post moves mm-hmm. of any post player yeah I mean Hakeem the dream the dream shake um especially against uh David Robinson and that one playoff uh meetup was Incredible, like, which yeah, we plan on watching that and having an episode on just that series as well, where David Robinson gets absolutely embarrassed. Right, I'm looking forward to that. Right, so <laughs> oh my god, yeah, that's gonna be great. But yeah, great team, shooters all around, and and just an unstoppable scorer who's around seven feet, um, who can shoot and take it to the basket. Now let's go to <laughs> one. Well, before we do that, I just yeah. want to say one more quick comment on Robert Ory because most people know Robert Ory from his Lakers and Spurs days. Okay. But he was also a lot older at that point. When he was with Houston, he was a pretty good athlete. Right. You know, he was a guy that, you know, was still really young, uh, pretty explosive as well. So he did a little bit more than just shoot threes for that team. He could rebound as well, run the floor. Uh, and he had a few pretty 
impressive dunks uh, throughout those couple of seasons there. Yeah. Uh, so he was, you know, a better all-around player, I think, than people give him credit for. Now, yeah. obviously his seven NBA championships overvalues his, Are you saying his Ori overall production. But you're saying Ori isn't better than Magic Johnson and <laughs> Michael Jordan and, yeah, and that's, Bird? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so now moving on to, as you said, the, the 2011 Mavericks and their supporting cast. Yeah. Um, you've got Jason Kidd. Yeah. Who, um, you know was not was you know an older version of himself was not as good of an athlete wasn't quite as good of a transition player like he was with his <laughs> New Jersey Nets days mm-hmm. uh, but still you know obviously an excellent passer very high basketball IQ had really good size for the point guard position was even in that final series against the Heat even defended Dwayne Wade pretty well yeah, on various wow. occasions had that kind of size and strength um uh, but uh, he, the big thing with him is he improved his three-point shot because he was playing off the ball, and he knew in that role that's what he needed to do, so he got a lot better with that. Yeah. Um, and then uh, at the shooting guard, you have uh, the Jet, Jason Terry, mm-hmm. who's you a really two good... two the Jets in this series? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kenny were... the Jets yeah. and Jason the Jet Terry. Um, yes, and uh, Jason Terry would do, like, when he, when he would hit a three, he would extend his arms out and, like, bend <laughs> down like he was an airplane or whatever with the, his arms at being the wings or or whatever mm-hmm. uh so um but yes to the jets good i like shooter, that yeah uh but yeah really good shooter good score um earlier in his career averaged you know in the mid to high 20s um so he, he could really score the basketball yeah. uh and then you had uh the likes of sean marion at the small forward spot who uh you know was on that 07 suns team um, but, uh, you know, another guy that, uh, the matrix, really good defensive player, uh, could run the floor, wasn't a great shooter, but, you know, hit enough shots, um, uh, to keep the defense somewhat honest. Uh, and then at center, you had Tyson Chandler, who was really the perfect fit yeah. next to Dirk Nowitzki, uh, because not only was he a great rim runner on the pick and roll, you know, uh, they would run a lot of action where they'd have the point guard and, Chandler run a pick and roll with Dirk spread out, you know, to, to provide spacing. Right. And so the defense would have to commit to either sending help off of Dirk and he would get an open shot or the center would get a wide open dunk down the lane. That that's the that's what's so great about Dirk Nowitzki is because he plays at the big man position and he's such a deadly shooter uh, that it makes your defenses have to do things they normally wouldn't do. Normally your power forward is near the basket protecting right. in that situation, but he has to question that decision with Dirk out there. Right. Um, and the Mavericks also had off the bench they had JJ Barea who was a really small oh, yeah. point guard that actually came in in that finals and started a few games just to give them a little extra offensive punch. Mm-hmm. And really was the, uh, they were down 2-1 in, uh, against the Heat. He came into the starting lineup and they won the final three games. Yeah. Um, but he was, uh, he always had a great pick and roll chemistry with Dirk as well. You know, and running with Dirk as the screener is also super effective because he can pick and pop and you've, you've got to make that similar decision, except this time it's the guy defending um, you know, Dirk, do you help out on the guy with the basketball or do you stay connected with Dirk? But if you do that, then JJ Brea rolling down the lane wide open. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, definitely offensively, they offer, they presented a lot of challenges to defenses. Oh yeah. This is tough. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I mean, like Dirk Davinsky was so good. Like it's just that tall and that good of a shot. It's, 
we're probably never, I don't know, I don't want to never say never because there's a good crop of centers who can shoot the ball right now. Um, and we were talking about Giannis earlier and his potential seems kind of limitless at this point. But mm. so far we haven't seen a guy who's that tall who can shoot like that. Yeah. Um, it's just a matchup nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think Elijah Wan would guard? Because I just thought of that as a 6'11", 7-foot guy do you put him on Chandler or do you put him as your best big man defender, put him on, on Nowitzki? That's, that's the, uh, that's where the coaches get paid money, right? Yeah. <laughs> Those co- sort of decisions because yeah, there are advantages and disadvantages to both strategies. If you put him on Dirk, obviously Dirk's isolations aren't as effective. Right. Cause Elijah um, one's a really good athlete and very mobile and right. But then again, you could also just have someone set a screen um, you know, off the ball and try to get a switch so mm. that Dirk is matched up against somebody else. Right. That's how you combat that. Um, and then also the the disadvantage for Houston if you're putting Elijah on Dirk is when he's spreading the floor and standing off ball. Robert Elijah Wan is, is now, yeah, now yeah. away from the rim. Right. And he's your best rim protector. Protector, and that's why the Houston defense was so effective was because of his all around brilliance right. on that end of the floor. Um, whereas if you put him on Tyson Chandler, obviously Chandler's going to be more around the basket. So yes, you get to utilize his, uh, rim protection more, but at the same time, then Dirk is going up against a weaker defender in isolation. Right. So yeah, it's tough. I, um, you know, personally, I would probably say just keep the matchups the same and stick him on Tyson Chandler because again, I value that rim protection and all of that so much. Yeah. Um, and it, and I think Dirk is so good offensively that sometimes it didn't even matter who was guarding him. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. I mean, it, I, I think that definitely is a toss up of a question. What, what, what do you think? That is really tough. I think you're right overall. Cause I mean, the thought of Robert having him be your rim protector, it's probably not gonna, he, he could block shots, but it's not like Elijah one. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's probably the best matchup there is keep your strength where it is Elijah Wan's going to be blocking shots and then just hope that you can somewhat contain um, uh, what Nowitzki's doing. Um, man, this is a tough matchup for me. Just in, like Jason Kidd's out there. Uh, mm-hmm. Jason Terry's out there as well. Wow. I think um, I think one of the advantages for the Dallas Mavericks in this series is I think the role players were a little more versatile than mm. the likes of those Rockets teams. Like okay. I think Kenny the Jet Smith and Sam Cassell at that stage were mostly just spot up shooters. Yeah. Um, Sam Cassell eventually became a you know a pretty good all around. He even had a pretty good mid range game and he could post up other guards and stuff. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that was super refined at that point in his career. He was still really young. Yeah. Um, whereas Jason Kidd, you know, is that more all around. He's he sees passes. He, you know, is the really good defensive player as well. Right. Um, Sean Marion is another guy at the three that I think gets in there and gets some rebounds. And um, I, I guess yeah. Drexler is probably the best role player on that Houston team in terms of his versatility. Right. Uh, but even Jason Terry, I think, was not just a spot-up shooter. He could run a pick-and-roll. He could, you know, score in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. But I think Dallas has a little bit of the edge there. Um, but, you know, 
any team with Dirk Nowitzki, even though uh, Dirk wasn't a horrible defender at that point, he's he was definitely a negative defender. Um, you know, those Houston teams, at least for the most part, put out a, a, a whole lineup of at least average to above average defensive players. Right. Um, so hmm. I think Houston has a slight edge defensively. Yeah. But I think Dallas has a slight edge on the offensive. Offensive and, Wow. So are you go? Is, are you saying you're going with uh, the the Mavericks on this? It's it's really tough. Um, the uh, the other thing that you know you want to give Houston a little credit because they won back to back titles. Right. Uh, but Dallas, you know, they were basically prevented from being able to repeat because Tyson Chandler then was gone the next season. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they immediately were not able to even challenge. They lost in the first round to OKC the next season. Right. Uh, but I think if they kept the team together, which they very well could have. They just chose not to. Mark Cuban, one of the worst mistakes of his uh, ownership of the Mavs, even though he's been a great owner for that franchise, uh, was was letting Chandler go and not bringing that back because um, Dirk was still excellent that following season. They were still a really good basketball team. They just didn't have that um, complementary center that Dirk needed to, right. to be successful. Because um, for all of Dirk's strengths, again, his def- he's not a rim protector. Yeah. Um, you know, he's not very good defensively. So when you have that elite defensive player around him, uh, that makes him that much more effective. Totally. Uh, so, yeah, I, it, it's tough. Um, like, honestly, I think most of these series, aside from, I would say, like, the uh, I would take the LA Clippers over the or the 2014-15 LA Clippers over the 88 Hawks in less than seven games. Yeah. And I would also take the 93 Knicks over the 2000 Blazers mm. in less than seven. But all the other three, the 93 Suns versus the 02 Kings, then the 90s Jazz versus the 07 Suns, and even this 94-95 Rockets versus the 2011 Mavericks. I would say they're all seven game series. I think they're that close. Definitely. Um, and and yeah, it's uh, it's interesting to think too. Like in a in a seventh game, you know, thinking about the clutch factor as well. You know, you've got big shot Bob Hakeem was pretty clutch. Right. But you know, you look at the Mavericks teams. Like Dirk was pretty clutch at that point. Jason Terry was clutch. Uh, you know, yeah. it, it's it's really tough. I don't know. I uh, we may have to flip a coin on this. One. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> um, man, this would be another super fun one to watch. Um, oh man! And it's interesting to think about. Like, uh, I don't think either team was super deep. They both had really good backup point guards. You know, JJ Barea and like the Sam Cassell both did great jobs and and brought a different component to their to each of their respective teams. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, I guess one thing we should mention that uh, the 95 Rockets, weren't they the sixth seed or something? They were extremely low seed in the playoffs. Mm. So the Mavericks would have had home court advantage in this series. And you know what? Maybe I'll just go with them because they won more regular season games than that 95 Rockets Mm. team did. Well, but then you'll probably be like, well, I'm going to pick the 94 Rockets now. So Right. <laughs> um, yeah, take that. Uh, Otis Thorpe for the win. Uh, yeah, I mean, honestly, this is like a, a, a coin flip for me as well. Um, 
Elijah Wan is one of my favorite players, and I hate to have that be my biased reason for, <laughs> you know, making the pick. But if I, I mean, as an overall player, he is better than Nowitzki. Right. Like Nowitzki is the superior offensive player. Yeah. Um, but if you're talking all around, which includes defense, which is half the sport of basketball, right. um, uh, Elijah Wan's the superior player, and yeah, he's in my top ten players of all time. Whereas Dirk is more, you know, he's, um, you know probably close to in the top 15 but in that right. range and and so maybe that and because the the rockets were able to go back to back um i mean you could also argue the competition that you know like having the one series where they're going against orlando um with a very very young good but very very young um orlando magic team um and you know mavericks are right in there with um you know uh with lebron james and um, and all of that stuff. <laughs> We're having some power difficulties. Uh, I guess we have some thunderstorms going on now. Um, yeah. I'm going to unplug, yes, yeah, so that... There's not a surge or anything there. <laughs> um, so yeah, sorry about that pause. It literally was... The lights are flickering, and... Um, We're about to die. The roof is about to collapse on us. Yep. Looking out for so, ghosts and all of that. This will be the last ever episode of <laughs> Ghost Tucker Dynasty. Um, thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I hope you remember us fondly on this podcast fondly. Oh, man. Uh, but yeah, I thought that was that was pretty fun. It's uh, yeah. it's fun to you know do those sort of what if matchups and compare the you know the different eras of teams and that sort of thing. And maybe we'll have to we'll have to do another episode of of this sort of thing in the future as well. Definitely. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good day. This has been Duncan Dynasty. Leftovers or. The DMV Number 97. or house cleaning or Chumba Casino always brings the fun. Play over a hundred different games online for free from anywhere. You could redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. Live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. We're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of Ookla speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details.